Lord, we come before you this morning with great anticipation. We know that you desire to speak to your church. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd grant to us the courage to to obey, to not only hear your word, but to be doers of your word. Not out of a, a form of legalism or an attempt to earn your forgiveness, but because we love you. And we know that you're a good father and your ways are higher than our own. And for this time that you've granted us, not just the the time that we have before us in service, but for the brief time that we're here on earth, we know that you've given us an amazing calling. That you've invited us to join in that wonderful work of redemption and salvation. We know that you desire to seek and save the lost and you use your children in that work. So thank you for your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would reveal to us the deeper things of you this morning. Lord, thank you for our family here at Central. Continue to bind us together. Give us one mind, one heart, your heart. Help us to seek nothing but your will and lay our agenda, our plans to the side. You are so good to us. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to finish Paul's letter to the Christians in Colossae this morning. We're in chapter 4 of Colossians, if you'll join uh, me there. If you're a new believer, or maybe you're not a believer at all, you're just maybe a little curious about what it means to be a Christian, we do live in unique times. We are stepping into a time in America where it's really a post-Christian framework, if you will. The gospel has gone out, and people have accepted it, some people have rejected it, but we really live in, in unique times now where a lot of the world's information or understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus just comes from the internet. And so if that's you this morning, maybe you came with a friend, maybe you came with a spouse, and you really want to know what is the truth about this Jesus and his followers, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John, and then I would encourage you to read Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians, And this book that we're in right now, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Because the Gospel of John reveals to us who Jesus is, what he has said, and what he has done. And then the book of Philippians and the book of Colossians, it reveals to us who we are because of what Christ has done. If we are willing to put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus and the finished work of the cross, if we will share in his death and his resurrection, we learn from Philippians and Colossians what that means for us. Paul's letter to the church in Colossae can be summed up as this. We have all we need in Jesus. The title of the series has been The Fullness of Jesus Christ. We have everything we need in Jesus. Paul wrote in Colossians 2 verse 9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. You are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. See, when we are hidden in him, as Paul writes in the book of Colossians, we are God's chosen people. We are set apart for his good purposes, and we are deeply loved. When we put our faith in Christ, we share in his death. We get to die to the basic principles of this world, the basic systems of this fallen world. We get to put to death the world's sexual ethic and greed and anger and gossip and deceit. Those things died 
in Christ. And then we get to share in His life his resurrection, resurrection, we get to seek the things above and set our minds on the things above and not have our minds consumed with earthly and worldly things. We get to put on our new life, our new identity in Him, and that includes His compassion and His kindness and His humility and His gentleness and His patience. We get to bear with one another, forgiving one another, and above all, we get to put on Christ-like, self-sacrificial love. The one thing that holds all of these things together. That's what it means to be a citizen of a new world. Not citizens of earth any longer, but the moment we became born again, we became citizens of heaven. We were adopted into His kingdom, and His kingdom operates by a completely different set of rules than the world that we live in. It's not run by greed or anger or gossip or self-centered living. It's a kingdom of self-sacrificial living, living for the good of one another. We have all we need in Christ because of what His death and resurrection accomplished for us. That's the heart of this letter to the Colossians. And we have learned that there's no greater witness to an unbelieving world than an individual who believes this and lives it out. And that was Paul's greatest desire as he wrote to not only the church in Colossae, but uh, all the, the many early churches. He wanted them to see what Christ had done, and he wanted them to understand who were, they were in light of that so that they would know what they must do, what their purpose is, why they live in this really unique space between two worlds. You understand that, right? As a born-again believer, you're kind of in limbo. You've been delivered from the systems of this world. You're no longer a citizen of the earth. Your story ends in, in eternity, but you're not home yet. We're waiting for that day where Christ returns and brings his church home, but it hasn't happened yet. So here we are, sojourners, exiles, in a world that is not our home. What is our purpose? To bear witness to the truth. God has a plan for us right now in this space in between. And so as Paul closes this letter, he is teaching us what it means to be that witness, how we're supposed to engage an unbelieving world so that many will come to faith in Christ. Let's pick things up. Verse 1 of chapter 4 is really an extension of chapter 3, so we're going to pick up in verse 2. Paul writes, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul closes by pleading with the church in Colossae, pray. Be vigilant in prayer prayer, and pray with thanksgiving. Pray for us that God would open doors so that I may communicate the mystery of Christ, even though I'm in chains, that I may make it manifest and I may say the things that I should say. Why is it so important for us to put off that old man and those old ways of living and those old desires and put on the new life. Why is that so important? Guys, it is not about having our best life now. It is not because that new life will get us the most out of this life. 
that we'll have all of our needs met and everything we want we will have if we'll just put on the new life. That is the problem in the American church today. We live in a hyper-individualistic society and oftentimes that thinking creeps into the church and we orient our church services around the individual, your worship experience. And we come in and we want to feel something. And even today, that's how church services are built, as worship experiences. Guys, you want to experience God? Obey Jesus. You want to experience God? Study His Word. Learn the voice of Christ and obey His voice. It's not about emotional manipulation. It's not about conjuring up some feeling for 45 minutes during a worship service. Our walks cannot be self-centered because that is not the mind of Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve. God wants us to experience Him, but experiencing Him goes way beyond a fleeting feeling. And I promise you, if you would dedicate yourself to studying His Word and learning His voice and obeying His voice as the Spirit leads, you will experience God in a way that far exceeds momentary feelings. As one author put it, sanctification is the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. That's why we want to put off that old nature and be clothed in the person of Christ because it edifies the church and it bears witness to an unbelieving world about salvation in Christ. If we think our salvation and our sanctification is just about getting the most out of this life for ourselves, we have missed the heart of Christ. So Paul writes, continue earnestly in prayer, devote yourselves in prayer, stay alert with gratitude. What does he mean by that? He means be watchful and thankful. I think a lot of times we're watchful and we're paranoid. We're, we're like the person like looking through the blinds, watching for what may be coming our way. That's not what Paul says. Now, when Paul says, be watchful and thankful, I think he has a dual meaning in mind. Watchful as in looking forward to Christ's return, but also being sober-minded. Being aware and alert of the condition of the world we live in. Live in spiritually awake and alert. Understanding that there's a spiritual battle that wages every day around us. Paul writes, be sober and vigilant because, or I'm sorry, Peter writes this in his epistle. He says, be sober and vigilant because the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we're awake and we're alert to the reality that there is a very real enemy that wants to see us destroyed or at the very least disqualified. Paul even writes to the Thessalonians. He says, you are children of light, children of the, the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the, the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us be sober and awake. Now, he refers to being drunk. And when we're drunk, we're distracted. When we're drunk, we're dumb. But some of us, myself included, are drunk off distraction. We're so consumed with all that glitters in this world. And I know we've talked about this at length, but we're so consumed with what's being shown to us on our devices that we're not awake and alert. I mean, you guys have seen 
videos of people on their phone walking and they walk off a curb or something, or they walk in front of a car. I feel like sometimes as Christians, that's how we operate. We're not aware to the spiritual battle that's going on around us, and we're missing opportunities that God's placing in our path because we're in such a hurry to get to our next appointment or get to that next thing that we don't realize that, hey, I have a purpose. I'm here for a reason. God has a very specific plan for me and my church family. And that's to bear witness to his son, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong, act like men. And he's not telling you women to act like men, but he's saying just be strong. See, we, again, we don't keep watch out of paranoia. We are awake and alert with thanksgiving ready to respond, meaning we're mindful of the interactions and conversations and opportunities that God places before us each and every day. That's what it means to be spiritually awake and alert. We know who Christ is, we know who we are in light of what he has done, and we know why we are here. One sign, I think this is probably the best indicator that you are awake and alert. You're a person of prayer. That's one sign that you are wide awake. You understand what is at stake and you've devoted yourself to seeking God and pleading with him to work in this unbelieving world. Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians that we are to pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication and to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. People who are awake and alert are people of prayer. And I know that any Sunday morning we can teach on prayer and make everybody feel guilty. And that's not my heart. But I think it is a good indicator of how much we truly believe that God is able. Paul says, pray for us. Pray that God would open a door for the word that I would be able to speak the mystery of Christ, that I would be able to bring the gospel story to life with what I share. The gospel, he calls it a mystery. And sometimes I think we've been in church so long that we don't think it's a mystery. God took on the form of human flesh and allowed sinful men to nail him to a cross to take on the sins of all those who would believe in him. And they took his lifeless body after he had breathed his last breath and they put him in a tomb. And three days later, the tomb was rolled away and he was alive. If that becomes common to you, maybe we need to rethink the gospel story. That's miraculous. That's a mystery. And that mystery goes even further when Jesus says, put your trust in me and you can share in my death and share in my resurrection. Put your trust in me and I will clothe you with my righteousness so that when you, are, when you step into eternity, your sins are no more and my Father sees my righteousness on you. That's an amazing mystery. And what does Paul pray for? That I would be able to make that mystery known. Guys, even if we've grown accustomed to it, this is a great mystery. And let's, let's kind of take that out a little bit further. The person who follows this Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who came to this world and walked amongst men and died for our sins and rose again, if that Jesus is mysterious, his followers should be mysterious. Now understand what I'm saying. It doesn't mean we walk around with a deck of cards and we're like, hey, look what I can do. Pick a card. 
or that we have some, some cape or something like that. It's not mysterious in the sense that it's secretive, but it should be puzzling. People should look at our lives and think, man, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That is an abnormal way of living. That is unique. The peace that that person walks through life with doesn't, I don't understand it. Or that person's ability to forgive and not hold on to a grudge, that doesn't make sense to me. Or the way that person lays down his life for others, it just doesn't, it's, it's not a worldly kind of love. There's these qualities about the follower of Jesus that do not make sense to an unbelieving world, and it is a mystery. I think that one of the biggest challenges the American church faces today is we look normal. We fit in. There's nothing that sets us apart. And in fact, many churches are trying their best to fit in and to look normal, thinking that to that end, they can reach the lost. But that's not our calling. We are called to be set apart, different from this world, mysterious, distinct from what is common. We should be living lives that cause people to stop and take notice and ask questions. And it doesn't mean we put on an act. This is the life that is lived according to Paul's letter to the Colossians, a life that is lived in the Spirit. As we spend time with Jesus... We become more like Jesus, and we share in what Jesus is doing in this world. That kind of life begs questions. Paul says, pray that doors would be open, that I may speak the mystery of Christ, that I may bring be able to bring the gospel story to life with what I share. Paul understands that the thing that he is praying for is the very reason that he's in chains right now, and he wants more of it. He's in prison right now. He's in prison because he preached the gospel and lived out the gospel. And what is he praying for? More of that. I want more of what put me in chains. Give me more opportunities. God answered that prayer, didn't he? As he brought Paul between, before the world's most powerful leaders during his time. As he made his trip in chains to Rome. Time after time, he is brought before crowds and leaders, and he has the opportunity, open doors, to share the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let me pose a simple question. Do you think Paul was an effective evangelist? Yes. The answer is yes, by the way. He absolutely was. So I'm going to take my advice from him when he shares how we are to be effective in an unbelieving world. And he says, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So Paul's not just asking for open doors for himself. He's calling the church in Colossae to that same work. And then he explains to him, to them, here, here, here's the approach you should have. 
Here's my mindset when it comes to witnessing to those who don't know Christ. Here's how I engage an unbelieving world. I walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. And I let my words be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that I may know how to answer each question that comes my way. And I want the same for you. Be mindful, Paul says, of your witness. That's what he means by having wisdom towards those who are outside. We keep in mind that our lives are telling a story every day. We have an audience. And again, it's not about performing for that audience. It bears witness to us how important it is to put off that old man and put on the new life. To be who we are in Christ. Because there is always an audience. Be mindful of your witness. Paul says the word there is walk skillfully, walk thoughtfully, taking advantage of the moments that we are given. The Greek there is buying back the time. Again, hurry is the great enemy of your spiritual life. Hurry is the enemy of God's purposes for us. That rushed lifestyle that's common in the world today, we need to slow down. You say, Pastor, you talk about that all the time, because I still need to slow down. Let me ask you right now this morning, do a mental analysis. Right now, do you feel rushed? Even in this moment right now, is your mind going a million miles an hour? Anybody say, that's me. I'm having a hard time slowing down, even in this moment, as I sit and try to listen to the Word of God. That is the world we live in. But Paul says, slow down, be thoughtful, walk skillfully, be aware of your witness, and take advantage of the moments you are given. Make plain the mystery of Christ. Guys, we often don't have time to persuade others because we're just not mindful of our purpose. Now you may say, well, it's not our job to persuade. We'll get into that. Or either we just don't care. Sometimes we simply don't care enough to engage with others. Too often, I think our attitude towards the gospel is, you know, I'm saved. I know where I'm going. If you want to live that life, you do you. Good luck. That is not the heart of Christ. Or it's the gospel drive-by. And I'm not, that's a horrible sentence. Um, Again, hear my heart here. I'm not a track person. Tracks may have their place. But I don't think God, man, I got to be careful here. (laughs) Tracks have their place. I know men and women who have come to know Christ because of a track that was put in their path. Now understand this. A track, a track. You know what a track is, right? Beth is like, what, a what? A track. Those little booklets, when I was growing up, there were some scary ones. Um, But a lot of times the track actually is the fruition of all the individual relationships that led up to the track, and the track just sealed the deal. Does that make sense? So again, the track may have its its place. I don't want to come too hard, come down too hard on that. But there's such thing as lazy evangelism, where we think all we have to do is regurgitate the message. To, hey, believe it or don't, it's up to you. I did what I was supposed to do, and then I move on. I am so grateful that that wasn't God's heart with me. I am so grateful that that wasn't my mom and dad's attitude towards me. I'm grateful that that wasn't Pastor John and Becky's attitude towards me as I continue to reject 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and they continue to pursue me in love. I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Too often our attitude is here's the gospel, take it or leave it, let's move on. I've done my deed. But listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15. This is from the CSB. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. That means set apart. That in our hearts, no one, no one compares with Jesus. He is our Savior and Lord and King. There is nothing on the throne but, he, but Him. Regard Christ the Lord as holy. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Be ready to give a defense. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we what? We persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your conscience, your conscience, your conscience, Sound it out. Consciences. Consciences. Why does it sound funny this morning? You guys are saying it. Sounds good. Let's look at Paul, because this is what Paul taught, right? We should be ready to give a defense. We should have that mind in us that we're ready to give an answer, that we're looking for people with who have questions. And I'll tell you what, today the harvest is plentiful. People want to know what in the world is going on. And our responsibility as God's kids is to help right wrong understandings about Jesus. And there are plenty of wrong understandings about him. And Paul, Paul lived this out. If you look at Acts chapter 17, as Paul was traveling with his companions on a missionary journey, they came to Thessal Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue there. And as Paul always did, he went into the synagogue, and for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. He heard their questions. He responded to those questions. He walked them through the Old Testament and showed how all of those things pointed to Jesus Christ as the Messiah who has come and died and paid for the sins of mankind. He took the time to reason with them. He said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. Is it our responsibility to persuade? It depends on how you define the word persuade. We should be ready to give an answer. The Holy Spirit does the work in people's hearts. Our responsibility is to engage with an unbelieving world. And you might say, well, I don't have all the answers. Who does? If you've walked with the Lord, for, if you've walked with Jesus for one day and an unbeliever comes to talk to you about Jesus, you have one more day of experience than they do. So engage. Verse 16, let's pick up Acts 17, verse 16. Paul's not done. While Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Verse 
Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And Paul said, you're going to call me a babbler? Then I'm out of here. And he left because no one's going to call him names. No. Course not. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. But they took him and they brought him to Areopagus and, and said, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing us some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. So yeah, they called him names. Some of them made fun of him. But when people had questions, Paul was ready to answer. And he begins to make Paul, he begins to make reference to an altar that he saw. And there was an inscription on that altar. You guys remember what that inscription said? To the unknown God. And Paul says, this is the one I proclaim to you. With all of these gods that you believe in, you still know you're missing something. So you've built an altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you who that God is. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the one who's given you breath and he's given you life. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made with human hands, and he is not worshipped with human hands, as though he needs anything. Because again, he gives us all life, breath, and all things. See, again, we live in a post-Christian world with a lot of misinformation about Jesus and his followers. And if we're not going to answer those questions, who is? We're called to engage with people who have those ideas, to hear their questions, to understand where they're coming from so that may, we may better respond in truth and love. Guys, if we adopt this worldly mindset that says, if you don't believe, then you're my enemy and I'm going to have nothing to do with you, who is going to share the message of the gospel? Guys, that's the world's way of living right now. Oh, you don't agree with me? You're my enemy. Even if we did have that mindset, what are we supposed to do to our enemies? Love them. Are we willing to engage an unbelieving world? Are we willing to slow down and be attentive to the Spirit's work in our lives and look for those opportunities and step out in courage and, and knowing that we may not say exactly what we want to say, and we may not communicate it as, as well as we want to, but we trust Jesus when he says, do not worry about what you're going to say, because the Spirit will communicate through you. Do we trust Jesus enough to just be willing? And then Paul explains what the nature or the quality of those conversations should be like as we engage in unbelieving world. He says, one, they should be full of grace. Full of grace. Because God is willing and able and desires to forgive. Forgiveness should be the language of our mouths when we speak to an unbelieving world. Oh yeah, we deal with sin. We talk about what God, God's good plan is. We can talk about God, God's godly sexual ethic for this world. We can explain why we believe in a monogamous relationship between a husband and a wife and how that has been God's good plan since the beginning. We can talk about all of those things. Sin is very real and it separates humanity from a good and perfect God but there is forgiveness available for that sin. Full of grace. And then Paul, that, that term seasoned with salt, it's a metaphor that was used in the ancient world. It means salty speech. It means that what we say 
the words we communicate, they're full of life. They're full of flavor. They're engaging. Now, again, understand me, does God need lawyers? No. But he also doesn't need lifeless robots that regurgitate a message over and over again. We have the technology for that. We could do that if we wanted to. My son has a little hamster that you say something and it repeats it back to you in the voice of a, not in the voice of a hamster because they don't talk, but in a really high-pitched voice. Guys, we could buy banners, we could fly planes with banners behind them, we could buy billboards, but how does God desire to communicate the message of the gospel to an unbelieving world? Through you, through you and me, through our lives. So he doesn't need a lawyer, but he wants us. And he wants our speech to be engaging and full of life. And that is speech that is overflowing with what God is already doing in our own personal life. We have all had that teacher from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? How many of you have had that teacher that just speaks in a monotone voice and it's so soothing and calming and next thing you know you're asleep and you have no idea what that class was all about? I get it, we have different personalities, but if we're bored with our faith, I don't think that's salty speech. If we're just reciting lines that we learned in a class, that's not engaging. To be awake and alert and alive means to have a vibrant personal relationship with the Lord. It's nothing that we can fake. I'm not asking you to go out and fake something that you're not. But if you are bored with your faith, if you are disinterested in Jesus, that's not a him problem, that's an us problem. He spoke the universe into existence. He's not the boring one. I went to a a coffee shop the other day. And maybe this has happened to you. You drive through, and they make conversation, but you can tell they don't really want to make conversation. Their manager is standing by them, and they have a list of like four things they have to ask you to try to connect on a personal level. Hey, what are you up to today? None of your business, what I'm up to today. What are your plans? Where are you headed? And you're like, you don't care about any of this. Sometimes I feel like we can be that way a little bit. Hey, brother, how you doing? Oh, I'm really strong. Okay, have a great day. And then we move on. People who care, people who are ready to answer, that's what God is looking for. And it's essential that our conduct matches our convictions. And I'll say this, and, I, and I've experienced it in my own life. These questions that people ask, are usually rooted in a lifestyle that looks... We talked about this, right? When our lifestyle is different from the world, that is where the questions come from. But if we blend in, that's not mysterious. What what, what questions would they ask someone who looks exactly like them? If we're in bondage to the same things, if we're stressed out about the same things, we don't have any answers because we are living just like them. But if we have been set apart, that mysterious life sparks curiosity. All right, let's close out here. Verse 7, now Paul is just giving his final greetings. He's saying his goodbyes. There's people that are with him that want to say hi to those who are in the church in Colossae. So let's look at verse 7. Tychicus, see I can pronounce that, but I can't pronounce conscience. (laughs) Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. So Tychicus is the one who is going to be delivering this letter. And Paul says he's also going to share with you everything that's going on 
with me. Paul is probably in prison in Ephesus at this time, so he explains that Tychicus is going to fill in kind of what has been going on in his life. Verse 8, I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts, and with him Onismus. Now, Onismus, you know, is the subject of Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, he was the, the slave who was a pagan, and he escaped, and he became born again. And now he's traveling back to Colossae as a born-again believer with Tychicus. And Paul says he's coming back with, uh, with Tychicus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. And I just want to pause on Tychicus's quality of life in his character. What does Paul say about him? Why does Paul choose him? Why does Paul trust him to deliver this letter? Why? Because he's a, a beloved brother, meaning there's mutual affection there. They're brothers in Christ. He's also a faithful minister, meaning there's mutual interests. Paul has a heart for the church. Tychicus has a heart for the church. And then Paul says he's also a fellow servant of the Lord, meaning they both have mutual masters. And I'll tell you from experience, those are my closest friends. My brothers in Christ, we share a mutual love and affection for the church, and we have a mutual master. Why I'm uniquely blessed to come to work every morning and share in the ministry with Pastor John because he's my brother in Christ. We have mutual interests and we have mutual masters. Those will be your closest relationships. There's no bond quite like that kind of bond. Look at verse 10. He says, Arist man, <sighs> this guy, he's my fellow prisoner, and he sends you greetings, as does Mark, Mark, whose relationship with Paul seems to be healed here. If you remember, there was a, a disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. Mark had kind of abandoned them in an important moment of the ministry, but Barnabas wanted to restore him and bring him with them on their travels, and Paul said, no, he's, he's abandoned us. It looks like God's doing a work in restoring that relationship because Mark is now with Paul again. So Mark, Barnabas's cousin, Consuming, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is also called Justice. Now, it's not uncommon for someone who, the name Jesus was a common name. But many times when people became born again, they did not want to share the name of their Messiah. So now, Jesus, who is called Justice. We see an additional name given to him. These alone of the circumcised, or these are the alone are the Jews who are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends your greetings. He is also wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you. For those in Laodicea and for those in Heropolis, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send their greetings. There's one phrase that sticks out to me. And it's the way Epaphras prays. He is always what? Wrestling in prayer. 
He is wrestling for you in his prayers. I know what this kind of wrestling looks like because I have a mom and a dad who wrestled for me in their prayers. When I was a wayward son, you ever pray like that? Where you're so desperate for the Lord to work that you feel like you're almost wrestling? I think that's a healthy form of prayer when we're praying for God's will. And Paul says he wrestles for you. The substance of his prayers is that God would grow you up fully into his plans. That you would be confident that he's working in you to accomplish his will and his purposes through you. That's what keeps him up at night. That's his desire for you as the church. And Lord, let that be my desire for our church family too. But then Demas... He reminds us of how important it is to finish well because in 2 Timothy 4, 9, we read Paul's letter to Timothy. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly for Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and he has departed for Thessalonica. He's abandoned us because he loves the things of this world too much. Okay, verse 15. Greet the brethren who, who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that, that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And I just want to close with this. We have a hint of how the New Testament came into being. Again, what is one of the, the, um, the broken understandings of God's word? That someone just one day sat down, started in Genesis, and wrote this book to Revelation and said, hey, here's the Bible. No, it's 66 distinct books, 40 different authors, written over thousands of years with one cohesive message about God's desire to redeem mankind. How did the New Testament come into being? No, it was not a group of men in a dark room chanting to themselves and just picking out 27 random books and saying, ah, these seem to fit. We'll make this the New Testament. What does Paul say about his letter? Take my letter, read it out loud, pass it around. And that happened with many of his letters. It happened with the Gospels. And eventually, early on in the first century, they started to have this collection of letters and eyewitness accounts that they saw and knew were the Word of God. And the early church studied these 27 books, the 27 books we have today in our New Testament. So we get a little picture of this as Paul says, Read this letter publicly and pass it around. And then Paul closes and says, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So I want to close and I want to pray. I have a very specific prayer. 